Hello, I'm Charlotte Leslie, and you're listening to the CMEC podcast. The crisis in the Middle East seems to deepen each day. There's little doubt now that Israel has embarked on its long-threatened ground invasion of Gaza, and already the number of the dead is in five figures. Hamas killed more than 1,400 in its murderous attacks of October the 7th, and Israel has killed more than 8,000 people, according to figures from the Palestine Health Ministry. But what happens next? Well, to discuss that, I'm honoured to be joined by Gershon Baskin. Gershon is the Middle East Director of the International Communities Organisation, a UK-based NGO, and he's a former hostage negotiator with Hamas and Israel for the release of Gilad Shalit. He writes a regular blog for the Times of Israel. Gershon, welcome. Thank you very much. Many people are going to be looking at the, the horrors that are unfolding now, as well as the horrors that unfolded on October the 7th, and saying, where does this go? What happens on the ground? What do you expect Israel to do next? There are two major issues facing Israel. One is its commitment from October 7th onwards to dismantle Hamas's ability to govern Gaza and to threaten Israel, which entails removing and killing, essentially, the Hamas leaders of the political wing of Hamas and the military wing of Hamas. It means capturing all of their weapons and stockpiles and abilities to produce new weapons and removing any chance that Hamas will ever be next to Israel again. The second issue that Israel needs to deal with in parallel or first is retrieving 238 Israeli hostages, men, women, children, elderly, sick and wounded people, infants. Um, 238 people, according to the latest Israeli figure. Um, it seems that this is a, an enormous dilemma for Israel, because if three weeks ago, when this all began, there was a firm commitment and a directive even of the Israeli society, the government and the military to demolish Hamas, that was the primary objective, the directive. Today, public opinion has changed and now seems to be a, minority, a majority and a growing majority of people who are demanding from Israel to first return the hostages. There's no way that these two things can be done in parallel. We are either going to retrieve the hostages through negotiations and a deal with Hamas, which will be very painful and very difficult, or it will be left to Israeli military rescue attempts. There was a successful rescue of one hostage in which Israel brought her out, a young woman who was a soldier, but there are still 238 hostages left behind, and presumably they are in tunnels, in the web of tunnels underneath Gaza, which will require Israel to enter those tunnels. We can assume that Hamas and Islamic Jihad and other groups that are holding hostages will use the hostages as human shields, and any attempt by Israel to try and rescue them in the, in the tunnels will endanger Israeli soldiers as well as the hostages themselves. So that leaves a negotiated deal, and there are negotiations going on right now through the mediation efforts of Qatar and Egypt. And it seems that the negotiations have moved from a partial deal, what was called a humanitarian deal, or a deal for the women and children, to a discussion now about all for all. All the hostages in exchange for releasing all of the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. That includes, by my estimate today, after all the people have been arrested also in the last three weeks, around 7,000, between six and 7,000 Palestinian prisoners, of which 559 of them are serving life sentences or multiple life sentences for murdering Israelis. The question is, 
and I think this is being negotiated, is it going to be done in one deal where everyone will be exchanged at the same time? Israel would not accept the idea that it will be done over time in stages. It has to be done at once. And then the other question is, what happens to all of those prisoners? Where do they go? Do they go back to their homes? Most of them are from the West Bank. Do they get sent to Gaza? Do they get somewhere else? And what will Israeli Israel do once those prisoners are freed? Will Israel go after them and try and assassinate them one by one, particularly the 559 who have murdered Israelis and are serving life sentences? So these are still open questions. And while this is going on, the ground incursion has begun. There are tanks and artillery and troops inside the Gaza Strip. They are progressing slowly. This is also part of the tactic of Israel to put pressure on Hamas with regard to the hostages before the full-scale incursion begins. Once that begins, I think that the window of opportunity for a negotiated release of the hostages becomes very, very small. You're obviously an experienced hostage negotiator. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and past and your experience in this? I, I opened up the uh, secret back channel between Israel and Hamas when Gilad Shadi was abducted. That channel opened up one week after he was abducted on July 1st, 2006. Two and a half months later, I produced a handwritten letter by Shalit proving that he was alive and that we had a channel of communication that led to the people holding him. After that, the Egyptians took over the negotiations and insisted to Israel that no one else be engaged. I remained engaged. Olmert was prime minister at the time. He resigned. Netanyahu was elected. He appointed someone else. A German mediator came along and was negotiating for about two years. Anyway, down the road in April of 2011, five years after Gilad Shalit was abducted, a new man was appointed by Netanyahu, David Meidan, a Mossad officer, who I contacted. I knew at this time that no negotiations had taken place for more than a year with Hamas. And I told him about myself and introduced myself and the contacts that I had in Gaza. And three weeks later, he got permission from Netanyahu to run the secret direct back channel, which I ran from May, the beginning of May until the middle of July, when we presented, negotiated a declaration, a document of the principles of the categories of, of prisoners, of, of the terms of release of prisoners, which got the approval of Netanyahu to move forward. And then the negotiations moved to Egypt for the detailed negotiations on every name of every prisoner and their specific terms. But the secret back channel became official. Over the last eight years, I've been on, on and off officially, unofficially, negotiating for the release of the bodies of the two Israeli soldiers who were killed in 2014, Oron Shaul and Hadar Golden, as well as two Israeli civilians, Vera Mengisto, an Ethiopian Israeli, and Hisham Asayid, a Bedouin Israeli, who have been in Gaza for nine years. And those negotiations reached a dead end about two years ago, and I tried to shift the focus from a prisoner exchange to a negotiation of wider scope, looking at long-term arrangements, long-term ceasefires. Um, those negotiations also never really took off. What role do you think the hostages are playing in this overall conflict? If just say hostages are released on both sides and both sides get what they want in terms of hostages, how will the rest of the conflict work out? Charlotte, I think it's correct to call the Israelis who were held in Gaza hostages. I would not call the Palestinian prisoners hostages. They are not hostages. You can call them, if you want, freedom fighters or terrorists or whatever their name. But Israel is not holding them as hostages. They're in prison for uh, crimes against Israel, which you could call crimes against the occupation or freedom fighting or whatever term you want to use. But there's a difference here. 
hostages is, is the primary focus right now, I believe, of Israeli society becoming more and more the central focus, and the pressure is on the Israeli government to deal with them before waging the full-scale war and going after all the Hamas fighters and political leaders. As I said at the beginning of this war, after the horrendous terrorist attack on October 7th, it, the hostages were not the main consideration. The main consideration was getting the job done, as the Israeli public called it, because it's been a slogan now for 17 years that we're going to remove Hamas's ability to govern and threaten Israel. But it was always a slogan, and today it's not a slogan. Today it's genuine. And while I think there's a recognition that you can't defeat an idea militarily, you can defeat an administration, a government, and a military militarily. And that's what the Israeli aim is right now, is to defeat Hamas and to kill all of their leaders, to find their weapons and to prevent them from ever threatening Israel again. I don't think Israel has the slightest idea yet of the day after, or what I've been calling the day after tomorrow, because it will take even a longer period of time. We should be aware of the danger of Israel reoccupying Gaza. We should be very aware of the calls within Israel now to resettle the Gush Katif settlers, the old Gaza settlers, back in Gaza to rebuild those settlements. That would be, in my mind, a doomsday scenario. The Israeli reoccupation of Gaza has to be short, it has to be declared from the outset, and we have to know who's going to take over Gaza immediately so that Israel can exit at the first available moment. You've written a blog where you outline what a potential solution might look like. Could you outline that very briefly to us now? Yeah, sure. I don't know that I would call it a solution. I would call it a plan for the day after tomorrow. I don't know if it's a solution that we'll have to see over time, but it's a multifaceted, a multi-piece puzzle that has to be put together pretty much at the same time. It involves piggybacking on the model that was used by the Arab League to put an end to the civil war in Lebanon, which was the Taif Agreement, and its central core was a multinational Arab force that would be sent to Gaza led by the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, and hopefully the Saudis will play a big, very big role in it, maybe Morocco as well. But the idea that they would replace Israel once Israel has demilitarized Hamas, presumably there will still be insurgency in Gaza and a, a very unstable situation. We can't afford for there to be a vacuum there. So the multinational Arab force would go to Gaza with a limited mandate. My proposal is that be for a year, which could be extended. At the same time, and in parallel, there must be a renewal of a political process in which the, out, the end game is declared from the outset, which is presumably the two-state solution adopted by the international community, perhaps through a Security Council resolution, but this time genuine peace process, not an open-ended peace process like Oslo. And then I would expect for all the countries of the world, like the UK that have said for 25 years that they supported two-state solution, that they would in fact also at the same time recognize the state of Palestine and not only the state of Israel. That's one way of helping make this into a reality. In the same time and in parallel, the Palestinian Authority or the government of the state of Palestine, as they call it, would have to engage in deep reform conduct democratic elections, which would elect a new parliament representing Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. That parliament would be based on political parties participating on the basis of a two-state solution, of mutual recognition of Israel and Palestine, and a commitment that the Palestinian state would be demilitarized. I think at the same time, knowing the Palestinians, what they want is that their 
democratically elected parliament would form a government which would have the weight of governance and the powers and the authorities of the president of Palestine today, Mahmoud Abbas, would be transferred to the elected government. Mahmoud Abbas could stay on for as long as he wants as a ceremonial president, call him the king of Palestine or whatever you want to call him on the model of the king of England. But essentially, the political power would go to the government. And in parallel to that and alongside of that is, a, is an enormous international effort of reconstruction and rebuilding and reintegrating Gaza into Palestine and into the region and into the economy of the world. Along with that, I think there needs to be an international peace conference that will give basis for all of these things happen, obviously led by the Americans. But more importantly, in my mind, that international peace conference has to lead to a regional architecture of building security and stability and economic development for the whole region. And we have to focus on regional agreements and not just bilateral Israeli-Palestinian agreements. They have to be guaranteed and supported by Egypt and Jordan and the Emirates and Bahrain and the Saudis and others all along the way so that we have a new regional architecture that provides security and stability and prosperity for everyone here. And as I said, these are a lot of moving pieces at the same time, and they have to be done at the same time. They need to be planned and coordinated at the same time. And all the countries in the world that are committed to eventual Israeli-Palestinian peace need to get on board very early to make something like this happen. You're listening to CMEX Podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie. And I'm speaking to Gershon Baskin, former hostage negotiator with Hamas and Israel, and the Middle East Director of the International Communities Organization. There's one actor we haven't spoken about. Where would Iran sit in all this? Would it be within Iran's interest to see a, a political, peaceful solution? Or does it prosper from conflict, chaos, in extending its influence from Tehran over to Beirut? Yeah, I think that Iran is still not a player. And I think as long as the regime that's in Iran continues to exist, it, it will not be a player. It will be a potential spoiler using its own power and its proxies, perhaps even using the Russian Federation as a spoiler in what's going on here. And, and this is very dangerous. We have to understand that essentially there is no conflict between Israel and Iran. There's no conflict between the people of Israel and the people of Iran. There's a problem of the uh, of the regime in Iran, which is very problematic for Israel and for the world. I think the United States is doing a very good job at deterring Iran right now. We'll see what happens on Israel's northern borders. There are skirmishes back and forth every day with, with kind of rocket fire, but it's really not extending beyond that. And it seems to me, at least as we speak, that Iran won't enter the war either to U.S. aircraft carriers and destroyers are sitting in the Mediterranean sending Iran a very, very stern message, and hopefully that will remain that way. But Iran is, is a spoiler, and Iran still supports the Islamic Jihad. And when we talk about getting rid of Hamas, we're talking about dismantling the ability of Islamic Jihad to threaten Israel as well. And I want to make it very clear, it's, it's Hamas and Islamic Jihad can be destroyed militarily in terms of their governance and ability to threaten Israel and their stockpile of weapons. But you can't destroy an idea, an ideology, with military force. The only way to destroy an idea and an ideology is by providing a better idea and a better ideology. And that has to be a commitment to real peace, which means getting out of the delusion from the Israeli side that we can occupy another people for 56 years and believe that we can have peace, or believing that we can lock 2 million people in a 
territory the size of the Gaza Strip with the, with horrendous poverty and no future and expect to have quiet. So this really it means having Israel to face the reality that the occupation cannot continue, that if we're talking about a two-state solution, we have to begin this process from the principle that everyone between the river and the sea, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, have the same right to the same rights. For Israel, that means recognizing that the Palestinian people exist and they have a right to self-determination. And it means for Palestinians to recognize that the Jewish Israeli people have a right to exist and a right to self-determination. These are difficulties for both sides to sit down and come to terms that everyone living here must have the same right to the same rights, because without that, we can never even dream about there being peace. And I'm talking about peace in the immediate future. I'm not naive to think that we can go from the most serious trauma that the Jewish people have experienced since the Holocaust, or the biggest trauma that the Palestinian people have faced since the Nakba of 1948, to peace. We're talking about a long process here, but we need to build the foundations on which we can begin to build a process of peace and reconciliation that will probably take tens of years, but we have to do it correctly this time, not open-ended, not with determined end games, and with a full commitment of the international community to put its money where its mouth is. No more empty words about two-state solution that, that are written in statements of the European Union or the UK or the United States or even Security Council resolutions. We need a genuine process here with commitments and the ability to put pressure on both parties here to get in line. What would you say have been the sh have there been shortcomings in the international community and in the West in allowing the situation to reach where it was on October the 6th? I mean, it, you don't have to be in the region very much to hear people warning that the situation was unsustainable, that there'd been escalations, that in, in the vernacular, something was going to blow. What could we? So, I, I think I think as far back as 2009, when Netanyahu came back to the prime minister's office, he had a set strategy, which he implemented very well, which was to keep the division between the Palestinian leadership as it was one leadership of Hamas in Gaza and the other leadership of the Palestinian Authority in, in Ramallah. The goal was to keep a weakened Hamas in power because having Hamas there meant that we really had no one to talk to because Hamas was committed to Israel's destruction. And keeping a delegitimized corrupt Palestinian authority in Ramallah because that meant that we also didn't have anyone to negotiate with. Mahmoud Abbas failed to deliver on his promise when he was elected to negotiate the end of the occupation with Israel, and Netanyahu had no intention of doing that. And while that was happening, the international community not only gave impunity to Israel to continue to build settlements, um, which has turned in the last years to an increase, an enormous increase in settler violence protected by the Israeli army, at the same time, removing the Palestinian issue from the global agenda and from the Israeli agenda. We went through five rounds of elections where the Palestinian issue wasn't even mentioned because the Israeli public believed that there was no one to talk to. We have no partner, so why even bother talking about it? And the international community more or less gave into that. There's no partner. There's no partner in Israel. There's no partner in Palestine. So so let's just move on to other issues of that we have a greater success in, in dealing with. At the same time, from the Israeli internal point of view, this hubris, this, this belief that we're so strong that we can spend a billion dollars on building a wall and sophisticated electronics and we're protected, along with 
transforming the Israeli defense force into an army which is aimed at protecting Israel into an Israeli policing occupation force, where most of the efforts of the army in the last years have been in protecting settlers in the occupied territories and policing Palestinians, which just showed the unreadiness of the Israeli army on October 7th when they needed to be there and they weren't there. All these things combined are something that Israel didn't do on its own, although it has a great deal of responsibility for it. And we can't remove the Palestinian responsibility for their own failures and for the horrific terrorist attack that Hamas committed. Hamas on October 7th, it crossed a line in which they became a party to this conflict that no longer has a right to exist. And, and this is coming from someone who's negotiated with them for 17 or 18 years. They are no longer worthy of existing as a power that Israel should agree to live next door to. The world had an opportunity to engage Hamas after they were elected democratically and chose not to. And I think that was a mistake. There was a chance of at least trying to grant Hamas some legitimacy and engagement, which might have influenced Hamas to become more pragmatic. But after 17, 18 years of controlling a territory, under siege, locked off to the world in poverty and no sense that any political progress was being made, we created a monster. We didn't create the monster. Hamas turned into a monster. Can we talk a bit about Hamas and the people of Gaza? So there were several narratives going around here in the UK. The first narrative is that there is no collective punishment happening with the strikes on Gaza because all Gazans voted for Hamas and are therefore complicit in, in what Hamas did. That's one narrative. Another narrative is that most Gazans don't have anything to do with Hamas and the strikes are killing innocent civilians. Where between those two polar opposites, where does Hamas sit with the, the Gazan civilian population? The last time elections were held in Palestine was in, in 2006. And that's when Hamas was elected they did not win all the votes in Palestine. They won a majority, mostly because of the electoral system that was set up with a, a vote for regional districts and a vote on the national list. I know Christians who voted for Hamas, and of course, they were not Islamist and did not support Hamas. But it was also a vote against the corruption of the Arafat regime and the PLO and the Palestinian Authority and a vote of no confidence in the Oslo peace process, which had brought them to that point in 2006. Let's not forget that the Israeli disengagement from Gaza in 2005, the year before, happened unilaterally by Israel, where Prime Minister Sharon refused to negotiate at all with the Palestinian Authority. Mahmoud Abbas begged to conduct the disengagement in a coordinated diplomatic fashion so that the moderates in Palestine who wanted a negotiated peace agreement could claim victory. Sharon refused to negotiate with Mahmoud Abbas. He called him a chicken without feathers and did it on his own. And lo and behold, who won the narrative of Israel leaving Gaza was Hamas, just like happened in Lebanon with Hezbollah, where Israel withdrew without any kind of negotiation or agreement. Everyone in the Arab world believes that Israel left Lebanon and Israel left Gaza because the militancy, the armed struggle, worked better than the diplomatic efforts to end the occupation. So that's that's how Hamas won those elections. The fact that they won elections in 2006 
is hardly an excuse to claim that all Palestinians in Gaza support Hamas. In fact, over the years, we've seen less support for Hamas in Gaza from polls that have been done than for Hamas in the West Bank, where they don't rule. People in Gaza have suffered the rule of Hamas for all these years, and every attempt of protest or organization against Hamas ended up with a lot of violence by Hamas against them. It was very difficult to rebel against Hamas. So I, I think that that narrative is false. There is no doubt that Israeli bombs have killed many civilians. There is no question that Gaza is one of the youngest populations in the world. And by the nature of that, bombs falling on them kill a lot of children. Most of the people in Gaza are not combatants, are not partners in what was done on the 7th of October, do not carry guns. In fact, during the time of Hamas in Gaza, there are much fewer armed people than there were when the fighting was going on between Fatah and Hamas between 2006 and 2007. Hamas essentially eliminated all the militias that existed, all the warlords that existed, and took control of, of all, all the weapons in Gaza. And there are 30, at least 30,000, maybe 40,000 armed Hamas people in Gaza. But there are 2.2 million people in Gaza, and the vast majority of them are non-combatants. And they are victims of the Israeli bombs, and a lot of innocents are being killed. And this is why I talk about the trauma that's happening to the Palestinian people, which resembles 1948. And at the same time, in the last three weeks, more than 100 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, and no one's paying attention to that. There's rampant settlement, settler violence going on at a time when Palestinians are busy picking their olive trees. And villages in the south of the West Bank, in the South Hebron Pills, are being threatened with by settlers to evacuate their villages. And as we're speaking, that's happening to small villages in the south of the West Bank. So for Palestinians, this is really traumatic and really another Nakba. You're listening to CMEX Podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm speaking to Gershon Baskin, former hostage negotiator with Hamas and Israel, and the Middle East Director of the International Communities Organization. Will what's happening strengthen Hamas or will people blame Hamas for instigating such a response? I think that at this present time, right now, people identify with Hamas because they're fighting against Israel. It's also very interesting to note, it's it's almost bewildering to note that when I've spoken to friends of mine in Gaza, and I sent at the beginning of the war to more than 100 people that I know in Gaza, I sent them notes of concern and that I was thinking about them. And I'm been communicating with between 20 and 30 people over the last three weeks. When some of them asked me, why is Israel doing this to us? I said, because of what Hamas did in Israel. And they said, what did Hamas do in Israel? And, and I explained to them what Hamas did, and they couldn't believe it. Someone, a young woman said to me, Hamas doesn't kill babies. I said, yeah, but they did. And I described to her some of the horrific things that Hamas did. They are not seeing what Hamas did in Israel. They never saw it on Palestinian television or on, on Jazeera or any other station. Likewise, the Israelis see the physical damage that's being done by Israeli bombing, but they're not really seeing the human suffering. We view the world through two different television screens and have no comprehension of the dimension of human suffering that's happening on the other side. And, and this is true on both of us. Al Jazeera and Arab news stations don't report what Hamas did, and, and we Israelis don't see the result of the bombings other than destroyed buildings in Gaza. And there's a tragedy of war. People are talking about the legitimacy of, of bombing Gaza in the way that Israel is because the Hamas 
networks and the, the, the hubs are underneath hospitals and civilian infrastructure. To what extent is that the case? And to what extent is military intervention of the type we're seeing inevitable and the only way to deal with this, if it's true? Well, I would say, firstly, my understanding of the what's called the disproportionate use of force has to do with the fact that the total collapse of Israel's defenses, the ease at which Hamas and others breached the border, presented for Israel an existential threat. Not that Hamas could destroy Israel, it cannot. There's no balance of force between Israel and Hamas at all. But the ease at which Israel's defenses were breached puts Israel in a, in a position vis-a-vis -vis its real enemies, which are Iran and its proxies, Hezbollah main, mainly, but others, that Israel is weak and Israel is collapsing. And perhaps the 40 weeks of protests that took place in Israel against the government with a very dis divided society presented the picture to the outside world that really didn't understand the inherent strength within Israeli society, thought that Israel was in fact imploding. So I think that the, the disproportionate use of bombings in Gaza was a message mainly to Iran and Hezbollah that we are not weak. We are very strong and don't mess with us. That being said, there are probably tactical reasons for the bombing, trying to attack tunnels. They would have used a lot more of the bunker bombers, busters, whatever they're called, that the Americans gave the Israelis. And they're, they're, they're carpet bombing whole areas of Gaza. And, and I think that they're going after infrastructure, but they're also um, saying a very clear message to the Palestinians in Gaza that this is the result of Hamas. And if there's a, someone that needs to pay the account for the damage that's being done, it's not Israel, it's Hamas. That might happen. I think it's too early for people to realize that. I think it, if, you know, it's not a parallel, but if we learn the lessons of World War II, the bombing of Dresden and the bombing of Berlin and, and all the other damage that was done to Germany, at the end of World War II was also meant to send a message to the people of Germany who, who supported the Nazi regime that this is the price you pay for supporting Nazism. So I think this is a message also from Israel. This is the price you pay for supporting Hamas, for, uh, uh, for agreeing to Hamas ruling you, for not rebelling against Hamas. And if you have a, someone to blame, blame Hamas. That's a really difficult lesson to learn for people who are under fire. No one in Gaza is safe. I got a horrific WhatsApp, you know, they have intermittent internet. I got an, uh, a WhatsApp two nights ago from a young woman who I've been in contact with who had an abusive husband and I encouraged her to leave him. And she has a nine month old baby. And she wrote to me several times over the last two weeks that she no longer has a home. She's living in the street. She's breastfeeding. She wrote me the other night, I'm hungry. And, and it broke my heart because there's nothing I can do for her. And she needs food and she needs water in order to breastfeed her baby, and she has no home, and she has no support. And there are many, many, many other people like her. Most of my friends and contacts in Gaza have lost their homes already. More than half the population in Gaza today is homeless. And this is a human tragedy, and some would call it a war crime. Perhaps it is. I'm not a, a person of jurisprudence, but it probably is. And we're going to have to deal with that also on the day after tomorrow, when we look at each other in the face and realize that no one's going anywhere and the Israelis and the Palestinian people are still on this land and we can't continue to do this. We have to have what I've been calling, probably inappropriately, but nonetheless, I use the metaphor, a Belfast moment. And while Belfast was not a moment, it was a process over time, there came a time after hundreds of years of fighting in Northern Ireland where people said, enough, 
and while the peace in Northern Ireland is not perfect, people aren't killing each other anymore. And that's what I'm hoping for, that we Israelis and we Palestinians will wake up after this nightmare and have our Belfast moment and say no more. And it will require us to get rid of all of our leaders who are responsible for bringing us here. None of the leaders in Israel nor in Palestine have a right to continue to lead us. And that's a difficult process too, because we don't have people who we can identify as the next generation of leaders, but they will have to emerge and stand up and present new ideas and new visions and new hopes and new plans on how to lead us forward in a different way, on a new page, not killing each other, but figuring out how to live together. And what would your message to Western leaders be in how the West can facilitate this? Pick up the puzzle pieces that I laid down earlier and make it happen through the Security Council, through American leadership, through partners with the EU and Britain and the United States and the Arab states in the region. I, I talked about a lot of moving parts, the multinational Arab force, the deep reform in the Palestinian Authority and democratization of their government, a commitment of the world to push Israel and Palestine to accept a two-state solution from the outset of negotiations, to recognize the state of Palestine, to convene an international donors conference to provide finance for rebuilding Gaza and reintegrating Gaza into the world and rebuilding chances for prosperity in Palestine, led by Palestinians, not led by the United States or anyone else. The Palestinians need to make the decisions of what kind of future they want and how they want to rebuild their lives. These are the many pieces that need to be picked up and led by the international community, because we have two traumatized people here who are not capable of seeing tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. So we need people with vision and commitment and leadership. And very finally, one of the most disturbing, well, one of the disturbing aspects of this diabolical situation is the trauma isn't just contained to the geographical space of Israel, Palestine, Gaza. It is here in the UK. Both sure. the Jewish community are very frightened because they feel very, very threatened. And the Muslim and Arab community are very traumatized and feel very threatened. What would you say to the communities around the world who are looking on with horror on both sides at what has happened and what is happening? It is insane to import the Israeli-Palestinian conflict outside of Israel and Palestine. What those people who support Palestine or those people who support Israel need to be doing is asking themselves, how can I be constructive? How can I help Israel and Palestine live together in peace? And this also has to be led by leaders in the community who are not necessarily part of the pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian groups, but people who stand up and say, this is insane for us to be waging the battle over Israel and Palestine on the streets of London. We need constructive people figuring out how to make this not happen again and how to help bring peace to the region. And that can't be done by people who are just hitting each other over the head because they're on two different sides of the conflict. Josh and Baskin, thank you very much for speaking with us and lending us just some of your experience and expertise. Thank you very My much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.